Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on how I spent my summer pandemic. Not how I did, actually, but how my three guests did. In the first of two segments, get to know Ari Rosner. Ari is the founder of Pandemic Analytics and the creator of the Rosner model. He's also a rising senior at Caltech studying mechanical engineering, business, and computer science. Ari and his team have built a set of advanced algorithms and models that schools, religious organizations, event planners, and others are using to forecast for how many people can safely gather in their respective environments. Our second segment is a visit with Eric Beavers and Brad Robertson, two high school acquaintances who stayed in touch across the years and the miles and are now citizen broadcasters, co-hosting the Eric and Brad Show podcast. Learn what prompted them to plug in and the role the show plays in their lives. Enjoy. Tell me about not only the origin story of the algorithm, but um, like why you? What were you doing that led to the, what, what's the origin story of what you're doing right now? <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, it, it actually goes a lot further back than I would have thought. And I, I was thinking about this this morning because so when I was in high school, um, which is, I guess, four years ago now. Uh, I started as a cancer researcher at the NIH, and uh, it was it was the coolest thing ever. I was doing you know cutting edge research, and I had this awesome mentor, and I was working on and I won't go too deep into the biology, but I was working on trying to understand how extracellular vesicles fit around a cell, so how these spheres can can pack into you know fit around a cell in an optimal fashion because you have different ways that you know spheres can fit in. Uh, around a circle and you know whether I knew it or not that was kind of the genesis of a lot of the algorithms that I'm using right now and that kind of you know fast forward to probably April I was sitting on my couch watching Jeopardy and my mom had the blueprints open for her school and she was dragging stuff around in PowerPoint dragging circles around trying to you know show sort of what students would look like in the space and trying to figure out exactly how many students could fit in the space you know where the teacher fits because she's a school administrator she was actually the person in charge at her school to try and figure out how that they can safely have students return to classes and what's the most efficient way to do that. And I was watching her, we were watching Jeopardy. I was looking over her shoulder. I'm like, this is going to take you hours. They had, I think she told me that 160 rooms and it blew me away that she was going to do this by hand for 160 rooms that are all different shapes. And it was probably wrong. You know, she was dragging these things around in PowerPoint, you know, the scale probably wasn't right. If social distancing norms change, you know, if the CDC comes out next week with new guidelines, she needs to scrap all of her work. You know, she, she, she can't save anything. And back in April, these CDC guidelines of six feet were pretty new and people said, hey, they might change as our understanding of the virus, you know, develops and they still might. Um, so with her work, I was basically like, there must be a better way to do this. You know, let me, let me do what any logical person in the 21st century would do. Let me Google it. You know, there must be something online. And I started Googling and really couldn't find anything. And what was actually more concerning, so there was two things that I did find. So one was, you know, that they advertise themselves as a social distancing space calculator. And 
I looked at it and all they were doing was taking, you know, the number of, you know, the, the size of the room. So the square footage dividing that by an approximate number for, you know, let's say 30 square feet per people and saying, okay, whatever your square footage is divided by, you know, 30 square feet per person is how much, or how many people you could fit. And that's just not how math works. That, that's not how square footage and, and you know, packing works. Um, and I was actually kind of concerned because that's almost dangerous. You're saying that you can fit the incorrect number of people in that room. And in a lot of cases, it was telling you you can fit more people than you actually can. And then you go and do it and you see, hey, these people are actually close to six feet. So that's not safe. And then the other thing that I found was actually as an engineer, I found really interesting was uh, a packing calculator for conduit. So you'd put in the cable diameter to try to tell you how many cables you can fit in this rectangular conduit. Mm -hmm. and, and that sort of did it because it actually, you know, used the geometry and it did some pretty interesting stuff, but it didn't really have super advanced algorithms. It had this disclaimer at the bottom of the page saying, yeah, we might not be right. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. So I kind of thought, Hey, maybe I'll do something to help my mom out. You know, nothing too serious. Um, and that's kind of how it all started. And then, you know, you get into the algorithms, which is actually really interesting. And I, I could talk for hours about algorithms here, but I won't, I won't bore you with that. But the point is with packing efficiency, it's uh, not very simple because packing efficiency from a mathematical standpoint is, and, and from a, you know, a, an algorithm standpoint is so complex that there doesn't exist an algorithm that can do it in a short amount of time. So, and this has been proved by a lot of mathematicians over time. So the question is, how can you design a way that will get, you know, as close to an approximate as possible, always underestimate because you always want to be safer and then tell you exactly where to place people uh, within the space, as opposed to just saying, Hey, you can fit 20 people in this room. I want to be able to say, Hey, you can fit 20 people in this room. Here's exactly where you place them. So you don't mess up, um, to, you know, save you time, save your effort and really keep people safe. So, uh, yeah. And this, this kind of ties into what I was doing at the NIH with cancer research, because that's a lot of the similar packing efficiency, you know, type algorithms. And I, I decided to develop this thing. So it started out in Excel. Actually, well, the original version started out in code. And I tried to get my mom to use it, who has no idea how to code. I think the last thing she knew was punch cards, and um, which, which I have never, never messed around with in, in my uh, young years. Um, and yeah, I decided just, you know, hey, let me, you know, take a step back from the code. It might make more sense to start this thing in Excel. You can actually code in Excel. So I coded this thing in Excel and gave it to her and then kind of forgot about it. And I was like, okay, whatever she has it, she'll, you know, do her classrooms. And that's the end of the story. And she sent it to one of her friends and, you know, who's also out of school. And they were like, this is the coolest thing ever. Every school is dealing with the same problem. So my mom asked me to, you know, help this little lady. And she, you know, made a couple connections and we got asked to be on a webinar. And I was like, the coolest thing ever. I was like, oh my God, we're going to, we're going to talk to a hundred people on this webinar. It's going to be super cool. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And then I, I kind of thought it would end after that. So we give this webinar for a hundred people, um, which coincidentally was the largest webinar that it was a school organization and they had like every single school show up for this webinar, which had never happened for them before. Uh, and we get this overwhelmingly positive response and it turns out they had invited other school organizations onto this webinar as well. So we, you know, the next thing I know my inbox is filled with, Hey, can you do a webinar for our, you know, the Maryland state association? Can we do it for the Delaware state association? Can we do it for the Washington state association? And, um, all these different things. And, I, and you know, at this point, I think I've done 20 webinars for over easily over 8,000 schools across the country. Uh, and, wow. and even, you know, wider than that. And we've been developing more and more complex tools that can give you better and better understandings. And we're still improving the algorithms today because there doesn't exist a perfect algorithm. So we're trying to get as close as we can to perfect. 
Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I got to right now. It's been, it's been awesome. It started with just me. I now have a team of eight people, um, all college students, uh, who are working on this. Uh, and it's been, it's been an awesome journey. So that's probably the, the long winded answer. Um, uh, but it's been, it's been amazing. No, that gives me a lot to, um, that gives me a lot to unpack. So tell me a little bit about, um, what is it about the packing efficiency algorithm that, um, that can't be calculated quickly? So I, I, I'm not going to go into too much of the theory. So there, but there's this thing called NP hard. It's non polynomial hard. And it, you know, if you've heard of the traveling salesman problem, it's, uh, on this same order of magnitude of that. So the traveling salesman problem, if you're not familiar with it is you have a bunch of these cities and you're trying to figure out the salesman wants to hit every city. What's the shortest path you can take. And algorithms as, as you know, a concept is always trying to figure out what is the, you know, what shortcuts can we take to be able to not have to try every single path? You know, is there a more efficient way that doesn't, you know, make us try every single possible combination, which is, you know, a, a ton of combinations. So, Hacking efficiency is, is similar in the complexity where there are so many different ways you can organize these things with complex geometries and weird shapes that, uh, you know, you, you really have to, you know, naively try every single combination, uh, to really figure it out. And to try that, you know, as the size of the room scales, your runtime is going to take forever. So I was really, so it's a function of computing power. It, it is. Yeah. So yeah, okay. in theory, if you had, you know, an infinite amount of time and a ton of computing power, you could get, you know, the optimal configuration. But I know, I think 49 people is the largest thing that's ever been run on a computer. Um, and after that, it, it takes, you know, years to run. So, yeah. So you're so, talking okay. about scenarios where you could have a lecture hall or subsequent to us or, or related to some of our conversations, a concert hall where you might have, 500 people or 5,000 people or God forbid a stadium of 50,000 people. It's, it's basically technically impossible to do it without shortcuts. Yes. So and it is impossible to get the perfect configuration without trying every single one. But what my team and I have developed is a way to get really, really, really damn close and be able to still calculate it pretty quickly. So it's, it's been awesome. Close enough for COVID. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a couple of things. Yeah. So it's close enough for COVID, you know, in, in my mind, a lot of the guidelines are saying, Hey, you know, at your stadium or at your venue, you can fit 20% of the people. And if we can help you get from that 20% to that 30%, that's still going to be an increase in your revenue, but we're also going to have the added benefit of making sure that you are doing this in the safest way possible. Um, so when you look at a venue and you're trying to figure out how do we fit people in here, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, you know, super complex variables because the lecture hall is actually within reason, not that hard because a, that they're pretty small, but you know, not really caring about that with a lecture hall, you're having people sit individually. So it's each individual person in a, in a you know, in a, in a self-contained bubble of six feet, but with a stadium or with a venue, you're actually adding in another variable, which is people want to sit together with their family or with their friends or people that they've been social distance or they've been quarantined with and they don't need to be social distance from. So you'll have groups of threes and fours and twos and ones that are interspersed. So the next challenge that actually came up with when uh, a, you know, a synagogue approached me and said, Hey, how do we do this for our synagogue? You know, with different families that want to be able to sit together. And I, I sat back for a while and tried that. And that makes it, you know, that adds in an 
even more you know complex layer to this challenge so um yeah it's definitely really challenging in that scenario where you have pods of people who can be together what do you try what what do you have to take into account as variables is it how big in space the pod is in which they'll be and then how much distance their pod needs from everybody else like how, what's the what's the sort of basic unit you're dealing with in that scenario yeah so in that case it is you know it's basically that this pod can sit right next to each other so we're going to have at least right now we have it set up so that they're in a row so if you think about you know you have this row of seats they're in consecutive seats and then any other pod is going to be at least six feet away from any other member of that pod so no two pods are going to be too close to each other um and yeah that's kind of how we go about it okay before i jump too far ahead because i want to talk about some of the specific uh applications you've seen so far and some of the results um take me can you just tell me a little bit more about the linear journey of where you um you know you started to do the webinars and you started to talk to other organizations and at what point did you say oh man this is a business or this is potentially a business um that's sort of question a question b is um what are the eight other people doing on your team okay sure so question a so i i started this thing for my mom in april let's say uh, i think end of april is when i did my first webinar uh, and then we kept getting invited to probably at, at some points we were doing two to three webinars a week. Uh, and these are hour and a half, sometimes webinars. Usually it's about an hour for the webinar. Then we'd have about half an hour of questions on top of that. I'd have, you know, schools reach out to me and ask, you know, tons of questions, uh, whether it's, Hey, can you help me with this? Or can you, you know, give me some advice about this weird configuration that we had? Because originally we just started with, you could only do rectangular rooms, um, because that was the easiest thing for me to model. And then we, since then we've gotten more complex where you can do really weird geometries and stuff. Uh, but yeah, initially it was those rectangular rooms and people would ask questions of, Hey, I have this classroom that has, you know, fixed tables that, you know, that think of it like a science classroom that has these fixed lab tables or all these other permutations. And I kept, you know, having these one-off calls and they would be, you know, an hour or whatever. And the time kept adding up and adding up and adding up. And at one point, one school was basically like, Hey, we'd love to have you do consulting for us. And, I was like, well, you know, I'm happy to do this for free, um, but you know, you know, uh, I'm not really trying to get rich off this thing. And I started doing the math pretty quickly. We're actually, we were hiking one afternoon and I was starting to do the math. Well, you know, there's tens of thousands of schools across the country. Every single school is dealing with the exact same problems. And we really need a way to be able to get this in the hands of people as fast as possible. And let, let me just, you know, throw out a precursor that my goal is not to get rich off this thing. You know, I think that the pandemic has put tons of stress on schools, on venues, on businesses, and I'm not trying to get rich off the pandemic. Uh, so when you actually, when, when, you know, schools come to us or when any venue or any business comes to us, if they have any, you know, issues with paying anything at all, automatically give it to them for free. No questions asked. So let me, let me just say, I'm not trying to get rich off this thing, but yeah, so I started getting more schools that were interested. And at a certain point, you know, I, I did some of the numbers in my head and I said, Hey, maybe we can make this work. So, um, this was probably in early June at that point. And I just said, Hey, you know, let me, let me launch this thing, make an LLC. You know, one of my best friends at school said that he wanted to come on and help with marketing. Um, I actually had, uh, so the daughter of one of the people that had been on my presentation reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I, I go to Carnegie Mellon. I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can I help out? And I said, absolutely. would love to have your help. And that's kind of how I got my first two, two employees. 
Um, and yeah, we've grown ever since. So we have, uh, yes, that first guy is leading up and he goes to Caltech and he's leading up marketing, um, and he's doing an awesome job. And then, um, that other one, uh, the other girl from Carnegie Mellon is leading up my tech team. And since then we've actually added a student from CU Boulder, who's also on the tech team. And then since then we've added a number of people on the marketing and outreach. And that's kind of the biggest issue that we've had right now. Actually, the tech development is challenging, but you know, it's stuff that we can work through but getting this in the hands of people is really the biggest issue. Uh, and that's because it's really tough to get in a network. It's really tough to get a hold of somebody. You know, we're not trying to, you know, knock on your door and market this to you, but we are trying to help as many people as possible. And it's really a race against the clock. It's really, how do we get this in as many people's hands as possible? You know, in any school, in any venue across the world, how do we help as many people as we can? So we've brought on, you know, the rest of the team besides uh, myself, who does a lot of coding and then the other two members, uh, the rest of the team is all on the business outreach, marketing, um, business development side to try and really make sure that during the next couple of months when stuff really starts to reopen, that we can make sure that they reopen in the safest way possible. And do you have, um, I guess it's sort of timely now being around the beginning of September, um, do you have institutions that are, um, that are applying the method? Yes, absolutely. So we have, so... Wow, we have, we have a lot of institutions that are applying the method. So first, we have, we have a free version that anybody can download right now. They go on the website, uh, pandemicanalytics.net, and we have, I think at this point, over 10,000 downloads of that, um, which has been awesome. And then we launched a paid version that, like I said, any school that needs it, we give it away for free. Um, but we, we launched this paid version to try and cover our costs, cover our expenses, and then maybe you know uh, split whatever is left and split it with the team. And we also have a lot of users for that as well. Um, so yeah, it's mainly been on the school side. We've had consultants buy it. Uh, we've had, I've had architecture companies reach out to me and talk to me and, you know, ask questions about how to, you know, use different things. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really awesome. And I think the other, and I, I, this isn't, this is a terrible thing, but uh, if you look at, you know, the news that was coming out of Georgia a couple weeks ago, uh, how Georgia tried to go back to school and it just went terribly. Um, they had tons of cases, tons of people in quarantine. Uh, the week after that, we had a huge bump in, in the number of people that visited our website from Georgia. So I think that a lot of schools and same with colleges where they're, they're coming back, they're seeing, Hey, this wasn't as easy as we thought it would be. Let's take a smarter approach. Uh, and then they're coming towards us. So is the, um, is the idea that when an institution, um, whether it's on the free or the pay side, um, uses the method, are they, are they trying, like, are they going to be surprised with the yield because they're going to get a higher or a lower number than they expect? It depends on your expectations. Um, I think it is a bit low. Um, so there, there's a couple aspects to that. So it is a bit low. Um, and that's because a lot of people don't really realize a number of the different factors. So one thing is the, fr the first thing that most people do is they'll, they'll do the square footage method because, you know, schools are saying whatever it's, let's say 30, 40 square foot per person. So they'll take the square footage of their classroom, they'll divide it and they'll say, hey, I think we can fit, let's say 12 people in this classroom. They'll go to my method and see, hey, we can only fit 10. Why is that? You know, I, and I've got a ton of emails from people saying, hey, I think your method's wrong. I'll be like, actually, no, let's walk through this and I'll show you that it's not. And there's a couple of issues. So I think the first is what I said earlier, which is that square footage does not tell you how many people can fit safely. It, it is not an indicator in any way. It's the actual dimension and shape of the classroom that really is what is important with telling you how many people can fit. 
And then second is, is actually, I think even more important is the teacher because a lot of these things just say, okay, the entire square footage of the space is, is X, but okay. So let's just, you know, divide that. And then that's how many students we can fit. That doesn't say anything about where they put the teacher. So, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you can subtract one student and say, okay, instead of having 12 students, we're gonna have 11 students and one teacher. But then that assumes that this teacher is sitting in a single spot and doesn't move around the classroom, doesn't use the whiteboard, doesn't, you know, do anything. And that just isn't practical. So with our model, not only does it tell you exactly where to place the students, but you can actually go in and draw a specific space that teacher's going to want to take up. So if the teacher wants to use the entire whiteboard, if they want to use the, the side of the classroom in the front, if they want to have an aisle down the middle so they can walk up and down, whatever they want, they can go in and draw it. And then they know exactly where to fit the teacher. And that makes sure that the teacher is socially distanced from students at all times. So I'd say to answer your question, on average, we're probably a bit below what they'd be expecting. Um, but, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So the te you can create like the, the instructor zone so that the teacher, exactly. it can match their style or their preference in terms of how they like to educate. That's actually exactly it. So with one school in New York, they gave an account to, so, so, you know, as you know, buying our service that they can get accounts for everybody at their school. So every single teacher in the school has an account. So not only can the teachers go in and be reassured that they're going to be safe, but on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on how they want to teach, you know, if they want to use the whiteboard, if they want to use certain areas of the classroom, they can go in and customize and know exactly how to, you know, deal with their spaces. And that's actually really pertinent because one of the biggest issues is not just getting students to come back and feel safe, but the teachers are actually some of the people because they, they tend to be older. Um, the teachers are the ones that really don't feel safe coming back to school. So by putting this tool in their hands, it'll, it'll make them feel a lot safer about the space that they're getting in. And that's kind of the same thing when you know you think about venues and the entertainment industry. A lot of the, you know, bringing audiences back is only half the battle. You know, getting your staff and your, your, your talent to feel safe in the space as well and be reassured that they, that appropriate precautions are being taken is something that's really important. And I think it's oftentimes overlooked. So in the, um, uh, and pardon me if I get the nomenclature long, wrong, but basically in the pro version of your, of, of your offering, um, what does, what capability does the user have to have? Like, it, uh, you know, in terms of being able to put in inputs, what, 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 what facility do they have to have with, do they have to be able to like use a tape measure or do they have to be able to use like, you know, what, who's, who's the audience for it? So that's a really interesting question because we've had, because I get a ton of emails, right? And it's, it's sometimes from facilities managers. It's sometimes from uh, administrators or heads of school or principals or anybody like that. Um, we've actually specifically designed our tool actually to, to the lowest common denominator. So I try to make this thing as simple as and intuitive as possible. And what actually myself and my tech team do is that we'll often te test it on our parents, right? My mom is a school administrator. Um, my head of tech, her, her mom is a school administrator. So we'll just be like, Hey, you guys are gonna be our alpha testers. What do you think? Um, and that's been super valuable because they're probably somewhere on the order of magnitude, maybe a bit better than the average school teacher or the average school administrator. So, um, understanding how their experience is, what was confusing for them and, you know, how can we make this as simple and as easy as possible? So one example, actually of something that we added and then, you know, it's still not in the public version, but is, is on you know, our computer is I wanted to think about some way to think about airflow. So, you know, where you have your, hmm. your AC vents or where, where your airflow is, because that could potentially, um, you know, cause some issues. And what I realized pretty quickly is that might be a bit too complex because 
you know, firstly, that means you have to go into every single room, visually inspect where the airflow is, what way is it angled, and we could code that in, sure, no issue. But to have an administrator go in and do that for every classroom, but then they also might mess that up or be confused about what this input really means and all these other different intricacies that the marginal return on investment of having them be able to input where their air vents are is not significant enough that it would, you know, you know, mean that we should have this be potentially confusing for them. So what does that mean then? Do you, uh, is the recommendation, like how is the, um, how is the tool presented to them? Is it, this will, this will solve your social distancing space configuration needs, or are you saying to them, use this in conjunction with X, Y, Z, other strategies and tactics? So obviously, you know, just social distancing, is not going to solve any problem. You got to wear a mask, you got to sanitize, whatever. Um, and I'm also not a doctor. And I think that's really important um, to, to point out, you know, I'm not giving medical advice. And I thought you were we curing cancer. <laughs> actually i came into college uh wanting to be a doctor but that, that changed quick. um but i think the other thing is that we don't want to have that liability so we don't want to be you know ari said to do this and i did it and somebody got sick therefore it's his fault and you know that liability is just not worth the, the weight on my soul so um what we've really done is we're, we're providing you a tool so let's say you want to you want to have six feet of social distancing in your room you want to be able to take these precautions. You want the teacher here. The door is located there. You input all these things. Based on what you input, here is a tool that will tell you where is the optimal place based on these parameters that you inputted to go. And this is what we recommend you do. You go about it in whatever way you want. And that can be a bit frustrating because, for example, with our tools, you can change your social distancing. And I had a guy email me saying, hey, I want to make sure, you know, I'm doing this with three feet of social distancing. And I was like, hold up you're doing three feet of social distancing in a school. And he was like, yeah, you know, that's, that's our requirement. I think it was in Florida or something. And, you know, I'd love to be able to say the minimum social distancing that you can put in this tool is six feet. I haven't done that yet, but this is really to get back to your question. This is a tool for everybody to use, to be able to enable them to make intelligent decisions, but we are not, you know, telling them this is exactly what you should be doing. So in that scenario, um, it's sort of on the one hand an effort to be i mean the science could change as you said earlier like six six feet could just be the best the best practice at any given moment in time but then there's also you know for lack of a better way to say it the different political realities that get overlaid on top of the science so there are just some jurisdictions that um the facts aren't going to be six feet it's going to be three feet and so you're going to allow the model will allow them to do that, but then you don't have to sort of warrant the results. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so some school districts are totally going to say three feet, whatever, screw it. Some school districts are going to say, I need to fit 20 people in this classroom. And, uh, you know, tell me what social distancing I need, whether it's three feet, four feet, five feet to fit 20 people in this classroom. Um, and yeah, and those are their decisions. And, I am not in a position to tell them that they're wrong. You know, I'd love to tell them that they're wrong, um, but I, you know, that, that's not what they really want me to do. Um, I, you know, I'll let Fauci or anybody else tell them, you know, these are what experts say, but, you know, I'm not going to, you know, say it to, to, you know, closed ears. So in that scenario, does the tool work in such a way that, because um, I was assuming it was sort of a, a top-down approach where I put in my inputs and it spit out, uh, basically a grid or a floor plan. Are you saying you could say 
this is, these are my inputs. Tell me how to get to 20 people. Um, so I have that actually, it's not, it's not available to the public right now. Um, but yeah, uh, that's kind of one thing that some people have done backwards. You know, you could imagine kind of like you were saying that top down view where you put in your, your, your room and then you just try a bunch of different social distancing values until you get down to one that you want. Um, which is unfortunate, but yeah, that's something that I know some people have done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's reasonable, even I guess as an, as a planning exercise, like whether or not the person applied that in the real world. Um, I, sure. I think your I think your point's well taken. Like it, you can't, you, you're probably not at a phase with it where it can be locked down unless it were something like a federal mandate or it became the law of the land. You said it, I'm just not going to allow people to, I'm not going to aid and abet their, <laughs> their breaking of a federal law or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then what, um, what are like, do you see this as having a limited shelf life, your business? Like, is this, is there a day where you say, I can't wait to shut down the LLC because there's no longer need for the, you know, but how, how do you think about like, it, you've started a business so that, that in itself is a, you know, is a, is a, is a, is an act in a certain direction. Um, what is it? What is the business beyond the pandemic? So um, that's actually, that's a really fair question. Um, and I think so there's two aspects to that. So the first is based on current research, even once the vaccine comes out, whenever it does, you know, I'm praying for it to come just like everybody else. Um, but once it does come, you're still going to use social distance for a fair bit of time after that. That's at least what the current guidelines say. Whether people listen to that is, is a great question that, you know, we can debate for hours but that is technically what the current guidelines say. So, you know, that'll take us whatever, six, 12 months out, whatever. But longer down the road, what a lot of scientists and, you know, I think even Bill Gates is saying this, is that pandemics are going to be coming back every couple of years, whether it's three years from now, five years from now, pandemics are the new normal. And, you know, that sounds like a pessimistic thing, but I, I think it's, it's almost, you know, trying to scare people. And I, I think it's also possible that it could be true. And it's kind of a scary thing to think about considering how serious this pandemic has been. But what, you know, my thought is in the future, if this does come back continually, that will mean that we'll basically be in a cycle. So if you're in the pandemic, obviously you need immediate help right now. But in the future, whether it's designing new buildings or designing new, you know, financial plans or designing anything else going forward for these projections, you could use this to plan out so that when this next pandemic does hit, you're not sitting there closed for six months and not making any money like most venues are right now. So, so if you're I an engineering that, firm or an architect today, you might have an earthquake preparedness plan the same way you have fire exits, Mark. And it's just, it becomes another sort of standard plan that a, that a building engineer or a design firm would sort of be required to get a, get a plan stamp. That's exactly it. I think, um, that definitely is a way that companies, you know, seem to be going. At least I've talked to a number of architecture firms that are thinking of doing that just as an extra service. Um, and I think there's a lot of value there just because of how economically challenging this time has been. You know, it's not worth the uncertainty. So if you plan for it now, potentially, you know, you won't be stuck closed for six or eight months in the future. That's amazing. So you could, you could really foresee a scenario where depending on the severity of the crisis, somebody could pull this plan off the shelf and reconfigure their room and get back open for business overnight or over the course, course of a long weekend or something. Yeah. Uh, it's scary to think about, you know, I want this thing to be open or, or be over as fast as everybody else, but yeah, it definitely is something that 
you know, is, is a real possibility. Yeah, no, that, that seems like real value. If, if you, if you, if you're going to, if you're, if you're going to subscribe to the, the mental model that these things are likely, if not possible, um, then why not? Why not have this plan? Especially if you've lived through this, why would you want to, why wouldn't you do everything you could to avoid this again? I would imagine there'll be insurance implications that, you know, people that demonstrate they have preparedness plans get better insurance or perhaps insurance requires them to have these kinds of plans. Yep. Yep. I definitely, so I've been, you know, getting a bunch of people to mentor me uh, along the way, which has been an awesome journey. And one guy who's been absolutely brilliant, he, he works at Lenovo and he said, you can almost think of this time as a renaissance where people are coming out of the dark and have a completely different view of the world around them. And everything is almost going to be changed in a lot of ways if this is what happens going forwards. So yeah, we really need to change our thinking potentially and, you know, adapt to whatever the future may bring us. And if that means, you know, as a venue that, you know, when a pandemic hits, here's where I seat people, I can fit X percentage of the capacity. That means that I can sustain this amount of salaries of these of my staff for this amount of time. That's going to, you know, save jobs, save lives and really, you know, help people in the long term. And what has, what's the status or what's been the headway with actually making traction with governments? I would think that, you know, your message would be welcome, um, especially in, in jurisdictions where they are trying to get back to something like normal faster. Yeah. So governments are kind of split into two realms, right? You know, there's the upper government um, and we're trying to make, you know, headway there, whether that's with DeVos or Fauci or really trying to get you know, into an institutionalized way. And um, that, that's one aspect. And I'd also kind of group public schools into that because public schools have a group mentality. They have a superintendent. They have, you know, whatever the state mandates we do. And that's been kind of tough to infiltrate. Um, and actually I have a funny story that I'll get back to in a second there. Um, the second group is private schools. And I think those have definitely been uh, by and large, though the largest endorsers of this a, because they tend to have fewer students per classroom. So it's, more realistic for them to bring students back and B because it's usually just, you know, head of school or, or, you know, principal of one school saying, Hey, let's, you know, enact this. So from a head of school standpoint, we've been pretty good at, you know, different school districts or different private schools getting integrated there with public school districts. You know, for example, we're on the Alaska state, you know, back to school, you know, some back to school plan type thing for Alaska. And I know there's a couple other States that are uh, using us. Actually, I got a, an email from an architecture firm. This architecture firm was trying to, you know, charge like a couple hundred thousand dollars to do the same thing that I'm doing for, you know, almost nothing. And they said, Hey, we heard about you from Denver public schools, um, which I thought was super funny because they were trying to get Denver public schools to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars for this thing that I'm doing for almost nothing. So um, I thought that was pretty funny, but shouldn't they buy you? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we won't go there, but um, maybe, <laughs> I wouldn't be against it, but, uh, what's been really interesting is, so I, I won't name names, but I talked to a, a large public school association because the easiest ways to get disseminated to schools is really with these associations who, who you know, provide guidance. And then, you know, kind of like you were saying that governments, that governance, you know, trickles down. So I talked to this, you know, unnamed organization that was associated with public schools and, you know, sent them emails saying, Hey, you know, I have this product. I need to get in the school's hands. Public schools are reopening, you know, this week or next week or whatever. And they're doing so in an unsafe way. I really want to help people. And 
they sent a response, you know, I think it was their canned response saying, thanks for your interest from your business. Here's our standard marketing plan. And it was on the order of magnitude of, I need to pay them $20,000 to send an email for me. And I was like, you've got to be joking. So I sat there on my computer. I'm like, what do I do? So I sent this, you know, probably slightly passive aggressive email back saying, Hey, you know, that's at that time more revenue than we'd ever generated or like anywhere near generating. We still haven't generated that much revenue. But, um, I was like, there's no way we can afford that. Uh, you know, uh, if that's kind of what you guys are leaning towards, then sorry, thank you for your time and, and have a nice day. And they sent me a quick email back saying, okay, let, let's have it. Let's have a call. So I get on the call with them. You know, I show them what I've been working on and I say, I really think that this needs to start with you as a governing body with, you know, the, or as a, a body of interest and with power with public schools. And this really needs to trickle down from you. And, um, I, I mean, I'm not trying to make money off this. So I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to help people. And the guy's response was, why not? Why aren't you trying to get rich? And I was just like blown away that the governance is so tied to money and these things that they don't even care that much about safety. They just want to make a buck out of it. And I think that's kind of one of the issues is you have all these relationships with whether it's an architecture company that's getting paid a boatload of money or anything else, or, you know, other, other inside track people that I just don't have the connections to compete with. So I think it's really tough because everybody's so incentivized by, you know, making a quick buck. Wow. So there's, there's definitely a gatekeeper model. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I'm actually, I, I mean, I'm certainly, I've been around enough to not be surprised by that, but I, I would not have expected that even in this scenario. Um, that's not where I expected that tail to, to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how has this impacted you and I guess I have two questions about how this has impacted you. One, what, was, what, what, what track were you on or what path were you on in terms of how you were going to spend the lockdown? What, what were you thinking it was going to be like for you, yourself and your family? And two, you know, school's going back now. What does this mean personally for you and your education? Um, is your school like what, what method of education is now is, is in place at your school and your campus and um, have they embraced your model? <laughs> okay. So there's a couple questions there. Um, so yeah. So when I thought towards what I was going to be doing during lockdown, this definitely was not anywhere near the list, right? Remember I sent this to my mom and kind of forgot about this. Um, I've actually been really lucky. I've, I've had a ton of stuff to do this summer. And I think, you know, uh, when I look at the work that I'm doing, you know, a lot of people don't have a job or are struggling. And I've been super lucky in that sense. So I decided to do a lot more than I probably should have this summer. I had four jobs. Um, so I had my startup. I um, have been working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab for the past two and a half years. Actually, I think two years. Um, I worked on the Mars rover. I, I'm working on a mission to Europa right now. And I, I've been doing a lot of cool mechanical engineering there. I worked at a startup in Virginia called Link that's trying to make, or that, that is making satellites to try and uh, allow global communication. Uh, with your cell phone anywhere in the world. And then I'm also working at a venture capital fund. So um, those are my four jobs for the summer. Uh, and because of that, I've actually been keeping pretty busy, which I've been really happy about. Um, I think you had, I, I was listening to your podcast earlier this week and you had somebody else who's saying, yeah, you know, when you cut out everything else in your time, whether it's watching TV or playing video games or everything else, you can't make social interactions. Um, you can't go out to, you know, play with friends in the park. You can't go do anything. Uh, it's pretty easy to just, you know, get a lot of work done because, you know, how else are you going to fill your time? So I've actually been really lucky. I filled my time with a bunch of really awesome experiences. I've loved it. Um, and it's been really interesting. 
Your second question was about school. So I'm a rising senior at Caltech. Um, Caltech, at least for the fall, for sure, is not coming back. So I'm going to be learning remotely, which has its blessings and its curses, but means that I can probably do a lot more work than I would have otherwise. Um, I can keep doing a lot of the stuff that I'm doing because I can manage my schedule more easily with the classes being aligned. Um, and actually the time difference, because I, I live in Maryland, so the time difference is actually super ideal because that means I can get all my stuff done in the morning on the East Coast. And then by the time it's noon, everybody on the West Coast is waking up. I can start doing classes. I can start doing everything else. And the time difference means that I can really dedicate more time, more hours in the day because the day is almost extended by three hours because I start on the East Coast and end on the West Coast. So that's really been ideal. Um, but in terms of Caltech, so Caltech is doing fully online, uh, which is their decision. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but that's what they're doing. And what's really unfortunate of that is they had, at least up until a couple weeks ago, planned on coming back. And they were going to have, I think, two classes that were in person. And I was not going to be in any of them, so I was going to be remote either way. But one of the classes, the professor reached out to me and said, hey, we're one of the two classes that's coming back. We want to use your model. Let's talk. And then uh, I was super excited to be able to say, like, oh, Caltech's going to use my, my model. This is going to be super cool. Um, and then they didn't end up going back. So that didn't end up happening. So, um, yeah, they're not using it right now because they, they have nobody yeah. on campus. Yeah. And you're a rising senior in what, electrical engineering? No. So I'm a double major in mechanical engineering and business and then a minor in computer science. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're such an underachiever. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I don't sleep much. That's kind of the secret to everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's... It's really interesting. It's, it's all the stuff I'm interested in. And I think one thing that I learned this summer from one of the people actually at the Venture Capital Fund who I, I idolize, she's awesome, uh, Jenna, and she's really into this, this you know, idea of you're always hustling. And um, I really embody that and I really like it. And I think that that's exactly what I've been trying to do. Um, and I think it's a really great thing to live by. And especially during a time like a pandemic, and a lot of people have been on your podcast and talking about how you can spend your time improving upon something, working out, getting better, you know, making a, a you know, product for social distancing, whatever you want to spend your time doing, the pandemic's a good time to sit back, take a view of the world and figure out how you can make an impact where you fit in yeah. and hustle. Well, that, <laughs> and hustle, always. Um, well, that, that's, that's really great insight. I, I, have one more, I have one more question for you and then, um, then I'll let you go. What's the, um, what's the, uh, largest event or venue that you'll be installed in or that you've been installed in, um, you know, in terms of headcount? So venues, I've, I've definitely had, I've been struggling to get traction in venues. Um, and I think there's a couple of different reasons there. And I think it's partly my approach because I initially started just going out and trying to talk to venues. But I realized now that actually on the ticketing side is probably the best way to approach it, having some sort of unified integrated ticketing system that uses this to make it a lot easier for venues. So we don't have that many venues that are using it right now. One of the things that I can say is that, you know, I had a call with um, the ex-president of the New York Jets last week, and we actually have a call with him and uh, a senior executive at ASM Global tomorrow. So um, between all this stuff, you know, I've had intros to Live Nation, Ticketmaster, and I'm trying to get in, uh, you know, with the bigger players because they are starting to come back. Whether you look at, you know, some of the fans are MLS stadiums right now. I think NASCAR is planning on coming back. Uh, I think half of the football stadiums have already announced they're going to try and have fans of some sort. Um, and 
I think that it really, you know, if they're going to do it, they need to do it the safest way possible. So to answer your question, we don't have that many venues um, that are using it right now because mainly because not very venues are not many venues are back right now. But um, we're we're working on expanding to more. Um, always open to try and help out in whatever way we can because I, I think one of the things that Neva has been saying, and you're you're associated with Neva, is that venues are like the the you know last to open, and everybody's really struggling right now. And I think that people are going to start going back to live entertainment and, you know, whether it's next couple of weeks, or next couple of months, and we really want to make sure that they do so the safest way possible. So yeah. I really would love people to help more venues. Um, please reach out to me, but um, yeah, we're, we're not in that many right now. And which is kind of concerning. And, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, which is kind of concerning because the industry standard right now is not really well set, whether it's just trying to use square footage or it, a lot of places are using across the board. Let's just make groups of four seats and four seats. And even a bunch of those, you know, requirements are not really that, you know, ideal. So I'm actually almost concerned that people are going to go back to in-person venue entertainment. Something bad's going to happen. You're going to have some really terrible experience, you know, kind of similar to what schools are seeing. And it's going to be a reactionary thing as opposed to, a, you know, taking precautions uh, and being smart about it in the first place. Yeah. Well, broadening the question then um, in terms of like any kind of location or event type, what's, what's the max number of heads you've dealt with so far? Uh, well, I don't, so none of the places that we're working with right now, uh, have had people back in person yet. Oh, okay. So, so this is all, yeah. everybody's still sort of in the planning stage, whether it's a school or a. You know, oh, a no, schools, plan. schools we've had back schools. We've had, uh, schools with a thousand students or more, um, oh, wow. back. I, I, I thought you were talking about venues. Um, so yeah, we've had schools, we've had school districts that are using it. Um, but yeah, we haven't had any significant venues that are back, but yeah, schools, we have, tons of schools that have used it successfully and seem to be doing okay. Wow. That's great. That's great. And do you, whether it's for the business and your own marketing or just for your own intellectual sort of curiosity, will you follow what happens with those installations to see if it is, I mean, I guess it would be a little bit hard to control against other methodologies, but are you, are you going to pay attention to see if it actually um, keeps things at, at bay? Yes. And actually even more than that, I think, so this is one of the things I'm most excited about. So we've started partnering with this research Institute of key indicators. So Dr. Dr. Fine, and he is working on this methodology to try and figure out this thing called contact hours, which is not just that you should have social distancing, but you should have this extra metric that's related to how long you're in the same space as people, because maybe the longer you're in the space, the more likely you are to um, get infected. So we're, so related to your question, we are working to try and get more data from schools on how they're using our model, how their results are, and then try and improve this model with his methodology. So we're trying to implement his methodology to be able to make more intelligent decisions based on, let's say, you know, the length of a class. And I think that this is super important for entertainment venues because let's say in the future you want to have a venue that, or you want to have a performance that's an hour long versus a three hour long performance. You might want to have different social distances based or between people uh, between these performances based on how long the performance is, because you might have a three hour performance that needs more and more social distancing based on his results. So we are pairing up with him to try and work with schools to collect data on their results using our model, figuring out how long the students were in classrooms and you know what the infections or if there were any infections at all. And you know, if so, when and where did they happen? And then using that data to try and improve his model because no data is being collected right now or virtually no data. So we're trying to be a pipeline for him. And then in turn, we will use his results to be able to help schools 
and venues and anybody else make more intelligent decisions going forward. Gotcha. That's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, I love hearing about what you're up to and um, keep fighting the good fight, man. It's great work. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's and, been, uh, it's been a blast. First of all, Jesus Christ, what a professional setup um, you have there, Brad. Like, you look crystal clear. You sound crystal <laughs> clear. You're, like, well lit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all right. You know, it's coming together. What's the, um, what's the, uh, like, what's the commitment to that? Like, what, um, you know, I'm sitting here in my home office, um, Eric looks like he has some really good equipment there, but clearly he's uh, he's in a dining room or something. <laughs> you, you seem to have a, a next level setup there. What's that about? Um, I mean, it's so a few years ago, I tried out the whole Twitch thing. Um, and I guess I had done podcasting before that, but I tried out the whole streaming on Twitch thing and everything kind of got like with the PC I purchased and the monitors and stuff like that. It's sort of, ratcheted up a little bit more when i tried that although that didn't last very long um but this is just a wall and some you know stuff i bought off amazon i actually had a setup more like your guys's but then eric did buy a backdrop that he usually uses so then i figured i should do something similar um and now i'm just up against a wall it's, gotcha. yeah yeah that's um it yeah, sounds like good we're all audio, right? That was the reason I didn't set anything up. I thought we were just doing audio. We're not doing video, correct? No, no. I just I use the video just to keep the conversation natural, but um, yeah. we go audio only. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 And um, so it sounds like to a certain extent, I was going to ask um, if you guys are like gearheads in that way where you kind of get into equipment and go down the rabbit hole. And I'm, I'm kind of intimating, at least for Brad, that that's the case, like, you kind of you were in for a penny and for <laughs> in for a pound in terms of buying equipment, improving the equipment, tweaking the equipment. Is that is that at all right? Um, kind of. I uh, I'm still just using like a little Logitech webcam. Um, Eric has since upgraded to an actual camera that's plugged in, which is something I'm gonna need to do. But I don't know. It's not, I wouldn't say any kind of gearhead or anything like that. I'm, I usually just try to make the most with the least. That's the yeah. kind of situation I'm in. Because, I mean, it, you know, until you're making money from doing a show, it's hard to justify large purchases for me. So I'm trying to just do the most with the least. Yeah, I hear you. Well, now. to dial back for a second, um, because yeah. there's multiple of us on this, on this call, could each of you um, – Introduce yourself and uh, for listeners, and tell me where you are geographically. Yeah. Uh, my name is Eric Beavers, um, part of the Eric and Brad show. Me and Brad here. Um, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Excellent. Yep, Brad Robertson, and I am in North Dakota. Wow. And so, yeah. uh, how? What's your history? How do you guys know each other? So we both come from a small town in North Idaho. Um, both went to the same high school, although Eric's a few years older than I am. So we didn't really meet there, but I worked at a restaurant and I had a buddy at the restaurant 
And then I started hanging out with him and then turned out he lived with Eric and we met through that guy, basically just hanging out there over at his house, you know, year after Eric had already graduated. Um, as the years passed, you know, he found his way to Portland and I found my way back and forth to North Dakota. And this was um, about 10 years ago. Yeah. And we always kind of, when I started doing a show back in 2012, I think Eric found my show I was doing and he kind of always kept the idea alive of we should do a show someday. We should do a show someday. You know, you should move to Portland and we'll do a show. And that never really worked out. But then a few months ago, he was just like, do you want to just do one over Zoom? And I was like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, Eric, what was the impetus not only for wanting to do a show with Brad, but for you guys specifically starting this show at this time? Um, I, I'm the kind of person that always like, I always have to have an extracurricular going on. You know what I mean? Like, and usually it's music band stuff. I've pretty much always had a band since I was about 21. And I, that is like, it's super hard to keep going. I I don't know if you've ever done the band thing, but it's extremely hard to keep, you know, with kids, you know, just always, you get about a year solid out of someone and then something just happens. Everything falls apart. And then the idea just, I, I was never really into this. I've always been into theater, you know, being on stage and, and music and not really into this, but I am a crazy gearhead. And then it just kind of made sense. It was like, well, this is going to be way easier to do, you know, with just one person and it's fun. It's just, it was a new thing to get into just to buy the gear for, get the camera stuff going. And uh, yeah, and I love podcasts, you know, super into, you know, the Rogan and stuff like that. I was just like, this would be super fun to do and a lot easier to keep, you know, just keep two people. It really, the expenses way cheaper to do this than to have a band, you know, to have monitors and all the microphones and stuff like that. And then through the music stuff, I pretty much had everything. You know, essentially it was just getting this microphone just because I didn't want to use, you know, an SM58 or something like that. But, you know, other than that, I already had everything. Who's the, um, who's this for? Who do you guys, um, is this how you're, are you staying in touch with the people in your like sort of social universe? Um, Like, do you have any hopes or expectations about who's on the other side of this? Mm. Mainly, I feel like I do it for myself. (laughs) you know and while it's always rewarding to hear that people like the product for me a lot of my topics just come from things that I'm dwelling on throughout the week whether it be just stuff in my own life or just topics in the news or some old conspiracy theory or something and then once the weekend rolls around and we record I can then kind of get it out of my head and have a discussion about it. And then the next week, I'm no longer thinking about it. So it's very kind of therapeutic in that way for me, I guess, as, a, as just an outlet really for any ideas. But of course, you know, we always say, hey, email us questions, come on the show if you think you'll be a good guest. And it's always the interactions with listeners is rewarding too. But a lot of times it's just an outlet for my mental ideas i guess and i would imagine there's an element of that um well i don't want to presume but um 
in particular during this time, whether it's, you know, dealing with COVID, dealing with all the noise in our kind of universe right now, um, yeah. I would think having that outlet is even more amplified maybe, or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a constructive way to channel or filter all the shit that's going on in the world. Yeah. I, I, I would hope that listeners would be like, you know, we, maybe we can all come together once a week and try to make sense of everything that's going on. Cause that's, that's a really hard thing to do. And then I can always just count on talking to Eric every week and being like, you know, and just bouncing my thoughts off of him and ideas and stuff like that. Cause I'm in North Dakota, there's not a lot of, you know, social life is never anyone's main activity, I guess. And I work alone all day long. So, and I live alone. So I live alone and I work alone. So then it's like, let's just let these ideas fester all week and then we'll just get them all out there come showtime. Um, so, I mean, the whole quarantine thing for me was just the way I've already been living. That's just how it, how it go how it goes out here. Yeah, Eric, do you guys do you guys interact off mic? Like, do you or do you try to save it all for when you're recording? Like, what what's your relationship when you're not doing the show? Uh, very much. I find myself. Yeah, before this all went down, we weren't like best friends by any means. Like, we we didn't we weren't in contact all the time at all. You know, just maybe once every six months or something on Facebook or something like that. But as soon as the show started. I do find myself like uh, uh, at least twice a week, I'll, I'll go to say something like, you know, a little preamble before the show or something like that. And then I just, oh, wait, I got to save that. I got to save that. So I find myself like distancing myself from him and tell. And then when we start the show, usually we have like a 15 minute, but we try not to really talk about anything. It's more just like, is there something you want, we need to talk about before this or so? Yeah, pretty much the show is, our interaction completely and then before the show it's just making sure audio set up video set up and then after the show it's just maybe you know we go through 15 minutes and notes or something like that or you know make it talking about the guests for next week or something like that yeah where are the um are there are there um i'm gonna try to phrase this correctly are there things that um you guys definitely agree on or vibe on and definitely things that are like they're they're like you know they they set you guys um you maybe you have differing opinions or you get riled up in different ways about like how do you how do you deal with the the topics you're going to talk about and um how do you generate sort of heat between each other i i'm i'm pretty good at generating heat i'm <laughs> extremely bullheaded and i th i think it kind of works because I'm extremely bullheaded. I have very strong opinions about things. I love to argue with people. And Brad really isn't that person. Brad is more level-headed, can see, you know, both sides to something. So I think it kind of works out, whereas I'll just come out throwing crazy ideas out and he'll, he'll be the counterbalance and be like, well, maybe you should think about, think about what you're saying a little bit. And so I, I, that's kind of the idea for me with the, with the show is he kind of has yeah. the counterbalance to me just saying wild things. Brad, you talked, you, you alluded to something when you were first speaking about, um, you've kind of had some experience, you know, you, you experimented with Twitch for a while, you've done other types of shows. Can mm -hmm. you talk to me a little bit about like, you know, all these things to me are sort of in the same lineage of like, whether it was, um, you know, blogs, early social media, podcasting, um, now live streaming, um, 
you know, I, I guess, I guess some people on like one end, there's like this high pollutant idea of it being like the democratization of broadcasting or like, you know, yeah. people voices having access now to tools. Um, some people, it's just like, a, it's like, Oh, cool. I can, I can get myself out there and they don't think about anything bigger than that. It's just like a fun thing. Like, why not? Um, do you have a, like a, is there a, is there a philosophical or a political um, point of view you bring to it? Like, how do you think about these? Um, I mean, and like Eric said, I'm, I always really try to see both sides of everything and which I feel is a good thing. Cause that's kind of like, it's just trying to be em- like have empathy and see it from someone else's perspective and then just try to see it from almost everyone's perspective. The problem with that is usually not being able to take a strong stance on one side, which I feel like Eric's really good at doing. And then I'm kind of just always left in the middle. And that, that me learning that about myself has really just um, highlighted it in almost every aspect of my life. And that's something that I have to just kind of keep, uh, keep trying to figure out. But, you know, it's interesting because like I talked about, I got the job at the restaurant when I was in high school and, you know, met Eric through a mutual friend there. I would always listen to my earbuds all day at work with my iPod, listen to music, constant music listening to, and then I kind of ran out of music. So I was like, all right, I'll move on to comedy, to stand up. And I would listen to George Carlin and Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy and trying to just work my way back through all these greats listening to. And then I kind of ran out of that. And then I went on iTunes and I was just looking around and I'm like, what are these? These are, and this is like 07. And this is like, okay, what are these? podcasts and like they're free it's free talk radio almost i was like i don't even care what what these are about i just know that it's free so i downloaded a few loved them started interacting with the hosts emailing questions talking to them friending them on social media and really enjoyed it and then in 2012 i was like i i think i can do this on my own and start my own show and i found a buddy And then it was kind of like teaching myself, like, what's an RSS feed? How do I get on iTunes? How do I buy microphones and all this stuff? And I did a show then for about a year. We did like 90 episodes because we were doing twice a week. And that was interesting. And it ended when I moved to North Dakota. Then in like 2016, I started another show with a buddy. And kind of a callback to what you asked, Eric. When I, would, when I started that other show with a buddy, it was called The Point Podcast, and we did like 50 episodes before I moved back to North Dakota again. He would come over to my house, and we would sit around and talk to each other for like an hour before the show, just about our week or stuff we'd been thinking about. By the time we actually hit record, the, the, any kind of spark or whatever passion we had about topics was completely out the window, and then we had to force another hour of conversation. And it happened time and time again. So that's why I kind of almost like this Zoom way of doing it sometimes because it's kind of just once you're sitting down, let's just hit record. You know, there's, we wouldn't really talk for an hour beforehand, which happens easily once someone comes over to your house and you're like, hey, you want something to drink? Da, da, da. Um, so I kind of like that way of doing it now. So this is my third show. And also with those other two shows, we never really got guests because I've had to deal with anxieties and stuff like that of having just guests come into your house, like do your show in your bedroom or your living room. But what's cool about this zoom thing is that guests are almost an infinite amount of possibilities. 
And I was skeptical about guests at first, but Eric really liked the idea of guests and pushed the idea. And I think that it really helps bring an edge to the show. Just an edge, just that it's not two guys just sitting around week after week, the same two guys. It's nice to have a guest and it's also challenging to think up questions and it's a whole new game. Yeah. Just like podcasting is a, is a real whole new game. You're seeing podcasters get like $100 million contracts and stuff. And back in 2007, when I found them, it was not like that at all. It was like, it was like five guys sitting around one microphone kind of stuff back then. It was craziness. Yeah, yeah. I have found um, a couple of experiences I've had that kind of overlap the things you guys are speaking to. One is that, you know, we started our podcast um, a couple of months before covid hit but it really started to get momentum during the lockdown um and i have found it really i mean i you know therapeutic is probably the best word to use i just i, I, I struggle using that word but i have found it very therapeutic and helpful just to talk to other people and to know i'm going to do that once or twice a week gets you out of your head um gets you sort of it opens you up a little bit. And um, so even if you're stuck in the same four walls for a couple months, it's sort of like I'm going out into the world in like a metaphorical way. And I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting around and having a conversation. I'm certainly learning stuff. Um, just let, you know, taking in other people's stuff is so much better than just like marinating in my, in my own self-pity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's a, it's a distraction. It's like a, it's a project, you know? Yeah. And it's, and I'd like to think not only is it a distraction, but it's, it's somewhat productive. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, can't quite articulate if it is, but there is a finished thing at the end. Um, but the other thing that struck me, you know, because our model's always been about having guests, it's a, you know, it's an interview show is that, um, you know, it's amazing how, who will come on if you ask. I've been very struck by that. Like I read a book and I think I'd love to talk to that guy and I email the author and they say, yeah, or an article or a musician or, you know, a business person, most people are pretty cool about wanting to either share their stories or connect with another person. Part of it may be COVID, like people are just glad to, to connect. But um, that's been a big, that's been a fun part of it for me. Because really, it's just, I do it just because I get to indulge things I'm interested in. So if I want to talk to a business person, I get to talk to a business person. If I want to talk to an artist, I get to do that. And so it's very, in a way, selfish. Um, hmm. but hopefully it's, you know, it's producing something that other people find it. Um, all right. So you guys, you guys referenced a topic, which is so near and dear to my heart. Let's talk about your favorite conspiracy theories. I know you've covered it on your show, but let's assume some folks here who are listening, um, you know, haven't heard, um, let's talk about, let's go down that rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> um, what uh all right rather than rather than frame it that way um yeah what 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 makes you interested in in that line of pursuit and i i throw that out to both of you whichever one you want to jump in and answer first um as far as consp this okay so as far as me being extremely bullheaded and taking crazy stances. I love any conspiracy theory. I, I love the, it's entertaining to me, but then I'm also the type of person that's so, now it's all BS. You know I mean? This is all BS. You're all wrong, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of, I love the, I guess alien is the only one that I might like really get into. But as far as you turn on the TV and like ghost stuff, and so I'm just like, oh my, 
I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't get on board with you guys on this or the Bigfoot thing or anything like that. But um, it's fun to talk about. I love, you know, of course, love that. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute, then, wait a minute. Pacific Northwest guy, and you're dismissing Bigfoot? Yeah. What? Oh yeah. Yeah. What absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> When I first moved out here, so I moved out here four years ago, actually, this week, and I went to a state park, and I know it was a joke, but on the state park sign, it had, like, the don't feed the animals thing, and it had a picture of all the animals you shouldn't feed, and one of them was Bigfoot, and I was like, (laughs) that is perfect to me. That is perfect, and I will not feed Bigfoot. Um, You're from the East Coast? Yeah, I I grew up in Connecticut, and I lived in New York for a long time. Is Bigfoot, like, do they not even talk about it over there? I've never even thought about that. Is it way no, more of a Pacific Northwest thing? That was probably the most exciting thing about coming to the Pacific Northwest for me was like to go to the land of Bigfoot. Um, so no, Bigfoot's <laughs> definitely talked about. Um, I I kind of grew up like into that stuff, whether it was like Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster. We don't really have like uh, cryptozoology. Like there's no there's not enough open land for us to have unidentified yeah. creatures out there. Although. Um, uh, uh, Lake Champlain apparently has um, Champy, which is like a Loch Ness monster kind of thing. Lake Champlain uh-huh. in, uh, in Vermont, but it's not as big of a deal. Like it's kind of a local thing. Um, like if you're not from out there, you might not even ever know. Um, but yeah, Bigfoot's a thing, man. It's like I think like he's like a national icon. <laughs> yeah, Eric, Eric, you know how thick the woods are out there. You don't think there's any chance of Bigfoot? I- <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Oh my well, god. I'm not buying into it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So all right, but you also raised another important point. There's kind of like there's this line, and I think it moves for different people between like conspiracy th- theory, which I think we need to talk about a definition there, and then like paranormal. And they mm. definitely overlap, but they're two different things. So like Bigfoot to me is more in the paranormal realm he's only a conspiracy theory if you believe that someone knows he exists but is hiding his existence from us that's kind of how i would view it so bigfoot's less a conspiracy theory and more a paranormal and same thing with ghosts so unless unless there's some unless there's some external force keeping the truth from us then it's more paranormal than conspiracy theory is that like are those okay ground rules yeah that makes sense so, but, but, but I think people who are into one bucket tend to be in the other bucket as well. Right. So the government hiding like the moon landing that was faked from us, is a, that's a conspiracy theory. Total conspiracy yeah, theory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, or, 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 you know, and I think what they all have in common is like, you know, kind of like magical thinking. Um, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, yeah. The ones, mm-hmm. the ones that throw me for a whirl, whirl are like uh, Bob Lazar and that kind of – that's when I just like, man, is this real? Like, is, yeah. is this real? That <laughs> seems plausible. They had the, the Air Force pilot like a few years ago that tells this whole story about flying in San Diego out in the ocean and sees this object floating above the ocean and then it, on the radar in one second it went like 10 miles. And, like, the guy's, like, you know, he's not this crazy dude, like, highly decorated guy. That stuff is, like, oh, my God. Like, So people who put themselves out there, who adamantly stand by these stories, 
who really don't seem to have much to gain. Cause it's not like you're getting rich going on yeah, Larry King right. and talking about being a UFO expert. Um, yeah. Like why do they do it? Why do they subject themselves to that? That kind of thing. Yeah. It, it, that's believable. I mean that I can wrap my head around, but then like the, you know, I don't, I don't know if you listen to like coast to coast or any, or ever, have you ever, I have, but that? I don't, I, I, I can't, I have to, I can't go too deep. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's just I listen to that and like, oh my gosh, these people are crazy! Like I can't believe, and all, you can just tell, you know, they get on the phone and, you know, they're just looking for fifteen minutes of fame. Where you get, yeah, it's like Bob Lazar, this pilot. It's like I, they're believable characters, and then what they're talking about just seems believable. It's way more believable that, you know, there's some people out there that are highly intelligent that are just kind of watching us and making sure we don't kill ourselves. You know, what I mean, blow the world up, whereas the Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster stuff like that. It's like, no, come on. At this point we would have, we would have saw something like that or had real proof of it. That, All right, let's go it. through a few of these then. Cause I, I, I don't think I like your tone. Well, <laughs> well, what about, what about like the, what about like the simulation theory? Is that, cause I feel like once I start thinking about that too much, then I start convincing myself that something funky is going on. You know, yeah, I don't with like deja that one's vu. a tough one. That one, that one confuses me because if it were true, could anybody know? Yeah, and right. Because no one like, would be it, hiding it. Yeah, yeah. So come back. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I can't. Yeah, I guess I. I don't know if I'm just not smart enough to understand the simulation theory, but I've heard people go off on it. And so is it is is the idea that you everything you know even the people you know are just fake you know what i mean it's just like a computer simulation or are you in the simulation with you know are, are they all real is it matrix style the where you just are unplugged and you're just like every you know everyone in your life and then there's just agents that they're the computers but everyone's real my understanding is that the theory is that our entire reality only is existing inside of some kind of a computer or mathematical simulation and yeah. um, everything we're perceiving is, you know, a simulation inside of a computer and that. So am I a, com am I a computer? Yeah, we all are. Everything is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, well, you're not necessarily a computer. You're, 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 you're a, pro you know, you're a output. You're an output of the computer. Yeah. You're and code. that, and apparently the thing that freaks me out about it, I, I, I should have I should have brushed up on this knowing we were gonna go here, is that <laughs> that the mathematics somehow favor that. Like that's the thing that's I've, confused me over the last few years is that there are scientists that are saying it's a it's it's not just possible, it's like probable. Yeah. Yeah, they, well, they it's had like, like it's like somehow when they, you know, go break down like atoms or whatever and they go deeper and deeper and deeper, they go deeper and deeper and deeper into outer space, they're finding all just they're just finding like math equations somehow. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's what they're finding. And I understood <laughs> that it's it's just like this it's like a Sims game. Like we're all like in a like a Sims game pretty much. I don't know. I don't know either. All I know is it's, it's, I wish I were a little bit smarter and a little bit more well-read in like philosophy and religion, because I suspect maybe I'd understand it better. <laughs> there's a lot of very convincing YouTube documentaries uh, that you could dive down and figure it out. All right. I think after we hang up, I might need a, I might need a viewer's <laughs> guide to, uh, to the simulation. 
All right, so, um, all right, Eric, let's talk about Loch Ness Monster for a minute. So, <laughs> they're, they're, what's in the pro category column and what's in the con column? I'm going to go first. In the pro column is the grainy picture. Um, in the pro column is uh, the deep water that apparently goes underground and connects to another body of water. <laughs> That's about oh, all I wow. got. <laughs> And that, and that maybe it's a sturgeon. That's what I have in the pro column. In the con so, column is there's no contemporary picture. Is that all right? So go ahead, your turn. <laughs> so it's funny you talk about the uh, the like lakes connecting type of deal because there's a I don't know if you've ever heard about this, Brad, but where we're from, it's one of the lar larger lakes in the United States as far yeah. as depth. It's yep. called Lake Ponderay. It's like over two thousand feet deep. They do submarine testing in it. Very large lake. And I've heard a story about when the when Native Americans lived on the, the lake, uh, you know, 150 years ago or something like that. There's also a lake in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that's, I don't know, what, 60 miles away or something like that. Yeah. And supposedly there's a someone, some Indian girl died on the lake and then they found her body in the other lake. And there's oh like a God. theory that there's like an underground what you know connection between the two lakes or something like that so that is a cool idea i don't think i've heard that one before but i'm also i'm convinced as far as like the world's populated i think we've pretty much seen everything and we have the technology to see just about anything so there isn't like as far as bigfoot being out in the woods or the loch ness monster like hiding in this lake it's like you have x amount of people out in the world for so long and the technology is so high any like hidden thing is just already discovered unless it's like buried underneath Antarctica or something like that. But even then it's like, we're, we're kind of figuring all that out. But if you're what hiding about the bottom the lake, of the ocean, do you think the bottom of the ocean is going to reveal bottom anything? of the ocean is cool because yeah, you get that is, you know, harder, but I think we we're you know, we have an understanding of what's under there, but uh, it's the Mariana trench or whatever that is like, yeah, that's, that would stuff down there that's that's cooler to think about but as far as above ground you have planes flying over you know <laughs> everywhere you have satellite photography like bigfoot come on like you would have saw something at this point they would have they would have found him uh loch ness monster i think with so you know with sonar and stuff like that they they would have gotten that stuff i'm just yeah i'm too i'm too staunch and just like no i i know it i know it to to buy into stuff like that Aliens are like the, the okay. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Keep going. I don't mean. Aliens are are like cooler because then you like introducing the idea that they have a superior technology. So then it would explain why we can't really, you know, because you know they're they're an aircraft that are way beyond our you know stealth stealth abilities. So like yeah, of course they could get around that. They could they could be sitting you know interdimensionally. They could be in and out stuff like that. You know, the only one for Bigfoot is the interdimensional Bigfoot. That's right. where it's like, okay, okay. Like, but then it's like, he's pretty much an alien at that point. You know, they, they yeah, got the, that's where the interdimensional yeah. thing is. It's kind of like, it's not fair. Like you can then throw that one into anything. It's like, well, <laughs> where, like, where are all the ghosts right now? Well, you just can't see them all the time. All right. right then that's okay. All right. You know, I, I just, I, I, I can, I guess I can concede the possibility of an interdimensional, interdimensional Bigfoot. But then all bets are off. Like, it's not really, it's not fair. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and and so all Chaka, pretty much all this, even Alien or like mushroom, you know, taking mushrooms and seeing things, like I'll pretty much chalk most things up to just our brains are capable of like pretty much anything. So it's like even if you're sober, you know, dead sober, and you see something, well, that's you know, you could just be having some kind of misfire in your brain, like deja vu type stuff. It's like that seems incredible, but I I'll chalk that up to just your brain's doing a little spurt and you're just like i swear i've been here i've dreamt this before you know like or seeing something incredible well either to me it's either like logical there was some explanation like a plane did something with you know light and rain and you're just seeing some weird you know blah 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 blah. or bigfoot you just saw a bear you know standing up and you're just kind of confused it's off in the distance you know the lighting's weird but I, I, yeah, I'll chalk all that up to just our brains are, in, you know, insane, especially like, uh, you know, not to get weird, but like if you take mushrooms or something, just then it's like, oh, my gosh, what, what you're capable of seeing mm-hmm. and what, you know, then it's like, interdim- yeah, interdimensional stuff. You're just like, I swear I can see this. Just so yeah, it sounds like the, the common theme between what you're talking about is like you can concede in certain areas. There's things we don't know. So like in the in the Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster thing, you're kind of saying like we should know because it's within our current technological ability to grasp that, but we don't necessarily know how the brain and the mind work. So there's a little bit more possibility there. Outer space is so vast. Like we barely even know our own neighborhood. Yeah. And kind of the bottom of the ocean is the same way. We just, you have to, you have to leave room because we don't know. yet. So, and something I've, since I was a little kid, that's always fascinated me, like thinking about this is, you know, the idea that we, ha- like, if you lived in a world where no one had eyes, trying to explain to someone, like, what vision is, you know what I mean? I've always been fascinated with that. Like, if no one could see anything, and then one person could see, and you're trying to explain to all these people, like, this is what vision's like, it would be, you know, you could never explain that to someone, or taste, or, you know, all your, your five senses. So, that's where, like, that's when I'll get into, like, you know, maybe there's dimensions, or, or things we don't understand, because we couldn't even... You couldn't even grasp that. You if there was another sense, it. yeah, like we just don't know, you know, and that, that's cool to me. That's, that's when you get into something that I'll really dig into. Just like there could be totally, you know, you know, it's like, and then you get into like frequencies, like sound frequencies, how we can only get to a certain, you know, frequency low and a certain frequency high. But then you get dogs, you get the, like the dog whistle. That's so cool that they, they can sense a frequency you know, way higher than we can. So there's obviously things there in as far as frequencies that we can't even tap into high, low, same with, you know, then I'm assuming light and stuff like that to where you're only perceiving so much where there's, there's more there that you just aren't getting, you know, there's something in the air in between us that, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, you're just not sensing it. That's when things get cool to me. Like that's That's a pretty good argument for interdimensional Bigfoot, by the way, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Brad, what, what, what's your take? I was yeah I was gonna say that's why I get freaked out when my dog's just like staring down the hallway at nothing and I'm like and I start feeling like he's seeing something that I'm not seeing but they should like Eric you're saying like the mind's a powerful thing they should do a study where they take like a haunted house and they let like you know I don't know a hundred people walk through it and they tell them all stories about stuff that happened there like murders or whatever and then they should let a separate hundred people walk through it that they didn't tell anything about and see if one group 
says they saw stuff when the other and the other like compare what the each group saw because maybe you go to like a ghost town or something and you're hearing all these creepy stories and then you see a face in a window but maybe it's just because you heard the stories same well, with it's called a ghost town right <laughs> yeah just like you're walking around the the oregon or washington woods and it's like oh my god i think i just saw bigfoot if there was no bigfoot before that would you still have seen that uh, i don't know yeah. yeah i mean i would love yeah. to know like the guy who filmed that bigfoot video clearly somebody knew of a native american tale about the sasquatch yeti thing in the woods that wasn't really like widely known and said, Ooh, there's, there's something fun to do there. Like there's a joke to be played. I can't imagine they ever thought that it was gonna, I mean, blow up and be this gigantic thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could, we, we stand as much as we're sitting here having this conversation, we could probably go pitch some cable network to give us a Bigfoot show. Like (laughs) (laughs) Bigfoot is a reliable source of income. In the yeah. 21st century. Um, every rest stop, every tchotchke store, not even that. Like, I could go to the grocery store here in Seattle, and there's like probably Bigfoot candy bars, Bigfoot coffee. Like, yeah, he's yeah, you're, you're in the heart. He's a billionaire. Yeah, I'm in the heart yeah. for sure. For sure. <laughs> All right, so let, let's talk about the alien thing for a minute because that's that was sort of the one where I that's where I cut my teeth as a young lad. Um, and I, and I went pretty far into that rabbit hole. I used to go to like UFO conferences. I, I, was, I, was, I was immersed into it, into it at a pretty deep level. And it consumed me for a couple of years. Wow. And it was every aspect of it from like, you know, recovered saucers, government programs, um, you know, the face on Mars, like uh, ancient astronauts. Like there was not a flavor of it that I did not fully indulge in. Um, I, I liked it all. Um, you know, cow mutilations, like it all was, it blew my mind. And then it started to veer into connected fields, right? It became like, um, what's the overlap between the UFO experience and like people that have near death experiences. And like, you know, there's, there's people that have studied like the common ground between abduction accounts and near-death experience accounts and like how they say a lot of the same thing like all kinds of crazy shit right hmm. or, or, or it'll take crazy out all kinds of shit all kinds of interesting shit so but the, the one thing that really blew my mind was the, the my favorite author on this topic is a guy named Jacques Vallée I don't know if you've read his stuff he's who the French scientist is modeled after in Close Encounters so hmm. He's, um, he's a computer scientist. Hey, he's a real dude. Like he, in the, in his, his day job was he was an astronomer and computer scientist. And now he's, you know, he's in his like, 70s or 80s now. And he's, he became like a, a, um, a VC in Silicon Valley. Um, but all throughout his straight career, he's written books about the UFO phenomenon going back into, you know, the mid 60s. And, um, his whole line of inquiry is that it's not, it's not that either everybody's lying or there's aliens It's that there's all these people going all through time back way, you know, all through history who see things and describe things that are remarkably similar. Um, So what is it? 
And I and once I read that and it was like, oh, it doesn't have to be aliens from outer space. It's that all these people probably aren't lying and they're describing something in common. Um, mm -hmm. That like cracked my head wide open. And then I was able to get away from some of the other kooky stuff that was fun to talk about, but made no sense if you really scratched the surface, <laughs> but that I would defend passionately for hours. Um, but so like, you know, his examples are like, you know, isn't a leprechaun a little green man? Or, um, you know, what's a, what's a wood sprite or a fairy? Or like, what are all these things that, that these motifs that come up over and over again that visit people in their sleep or that lead the children into the woods or that, you know, it's all the same thing. It just gets dressed up in, the, in like the technology or the ability to explain it of whatever era it exists. And um, so I don't have a therefore that I'm leading to, except that that to me seems really hard to dismiss. Like that, that to me is the interesting thing to think about in all this is like, all right, I'm not going to assume everybody's lying. Um, right. Yeah. I had a, I had a history teacher uh, in high school, one of my favorites. Um, and he went off. This was like such a, it was, it wasn't like a subject. We just like got caught up and he, he was really interested in aliens and he went off on like the Mayans and he, there, you know, and I'm, it's been forever since I've gotten into this, but there's like a whole thing with the Mayans and like this whole cave drawing where there's like alien spaceships and they like, they can, they can date it. So they know when it was dated and, and whatever, you know, 1200, whatever it was, you know, X amount of year ago. And like, there's that. And then there was like this whole deal about they had drawn this line or there was like this trail that was a perfectly straight line for like 25 miles. And they're saying, like, in the time, it's, it would be impossible to do that. I don't know. That stuff is cool. When you get back in history and you look at, or, you know, Egyptians and stuff like that. Yeah, that's, that's, there's so many things in history that are so, like, you know, either Stonehenge or, or whatever that are just, like, there's technology that was beyond that time. And it's like, well, you can't just dismiss all these, all these different accounts at totally, in, you know, separate parts of the globe that are so related and, you know, either being cave drawings or, are things that were, were accomplished that were way techno like technologically above their grade that yeah that's super cool to me to to think about yeah the counter to that that i can't figure out is is there some kind of lost knowledge those people had or some kind of contact they had with something or are we just underestimating like the amount of time they had on their hands and what you could accomplish if you treated human life as disposable and they just threw bodies at it um, I can't quite wrap my head around that because I don't, you know, I'm sure there's people who have done the studies, but like, what would it take for slave laborers to drag those, those rocks, however far they yeah, drag? Like the pyramids and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I still don't know how they got the top one on there. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's still like up for argument, you know, there's still now it's like, a, you know, in the last few years, they're debating, you know, when the first civilization came about. Because now there's like, you know, fringe scientists coming out like, no, 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 we're, we're over 13,000 years, you know, from the first civilization to when we move from, you know, hunter-gatherer into, into, you know, agriculture type stuff. And it's so vague, you know what I mean? And I guess at, at 13,000 years, so much stuff like gets destroyed. It, it, it's interesting, too, is like, what happened to all these civilizations? You know, why did they die out? You know, and this is, you know, obviously way before Roman stuff, but it's like the Mayans, Aztecs, Egyptians. You know, and then what was before that? There easily there's, you know, now there's French scientists saying, well, we, we may be wrong. There could be, 
stuff way before this that was done. I, I don't know. Was there a, a boom, you know, where everyone, you know, died out or did aliens come down and, and, you know, dumb everyone down or did they come down 13,000 years ago and breed with us or something like that and, and create this superior race or something like that? Like the, the flathead people or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that conspiracy theory where there's all the, the skull people with the, they're like, there's, there's like the skull people, you know, like there's the Mayans have them. And then there's something like over in Egypt where there's a group of people that they find these skulls of humans that their heads are all long and then they all died out. And so there's like a conspiracy theory that, well, yeah, that, that mainly that backs up the theory that there was aliens that came down. They were like the rulers and then they just disappeared. And then that's how everything fell apart. And the same with the Mayans. There was like these alien rulers that came down and we've found these skulls, you know what I mean? That are like elongated. But then some people think that uh, this was that same history teacher. He was pushing the theory that it was actually a sign of royalty is they would like when you were a baby, they would strap a board uh, to your head and yes. like wrap it around and it would like crush your skull a little bit and you just looked different. But then some people are like, no, that was aliens. You know, that was when yeah. aliens came down and bred with us. I think one of the more interesting things in our sort of, you know, like contemporary is um, all the things they're finding out about Stonehenge. Like it's a much bigger site. It goes over hundreds of miles. Like they're finding other ruins that look like they were at this massive connected thing that was not even over, you know, 10 square miles. Like it goes way out into the countryside and, um, you know, the scope of planning around that and what the hell the thing was like, it's super interesting. Um, I don't even, you know, I guess the disappointing part will be if we ever find out what it is. Um, I, you know, the fun is in the not knowing, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. think that, um, do you think that maybe like to, to, to shift it from paranormal into conspiracy that maybe governments wouldn't want us to know because if everybody knew it would kind of throw a lot of religions right out the window. Yeah, I think that was that was something that attracted when I was really into all this stuff. One of the ideas that resonated with me or that I was attracted to was the idea that, um, you know, we're so we're like, I guess if we're prisoners of anything, it's like we're we're of, we're like prisoners of like the material plane and we're ruled by rulers of the material plane. And if there is this whole other dimension or universe or if there's all these other things going on it's probably a lot less manageable the the, the universe is a lot less manageable and so mm -hmm. we'd be if we're being kept from any knowledge it's of it's of those other because it would be harder to to control so right i could i could paint myself a picture where that makes sense i don't know about yeah. the religion piece per se except for me religion would be like a a proxy for a control mechanism right mm -hmm. oh yeah so yeah i can you know i can't articulate a unified theory yeah. of how it all ties together and makes sense but but in my heart of hearts it kind of <laughs> it kind of resonates for me <laughs> and i don't know if you if you watched or listened to any of that bob lazar stuff that was a year ago but no. it's like when you when you see an, a, uh, an account of an alien encounter from some crazy person on the side of the road in Texas and you're hearing just a, a two-minute news clip, you're like, okay, that's ridiculous. But like Eric said before, when you hear someone who's like a decorated individual that seems like they have, have integrity and they're not trying to profit, 
because I, when I listened to the podcast like a year ago of Bob Lazar, who said he worked for Area 51 in the, in the 80s or 90s or something like that, and he describes like, you know, the hallways and the offices and the building and the things he saw and all the technology. And he was a smart scientist. You can't deny that. And when I was halfway through listening to that, when I was working, driving around the oil field, I, I like got a chill because I was like, oh my gosh this guy might be telling the truth. This, this might be real. And that's yeah. just, yeah. I can't, you're saying something which, which, which always strikes me. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. Like, you know, it doesn't take that much. Not like you can do some research, like the book publishing industry, isn't that lucrative these days. So like if Bob yeah. Lazar writes a book about this, what's he going to make 50 grand, right. maybe a hundred grand. If, if, if it tells a few, I mean, it's not like he's going to sell a million copies of his UFO book. Right. Um, so I don't really understand, unless there's like levels of psychology at play that I'm just ignorant about, why would he do that? Why would he waste his time? Why yeah. would he waste his time constructing this story, like embarrassing himself? I'm sure his family's not psyched. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I, I have a hard time reconciling that. Like, why would you bother? Um, yeah, I can relate I, to know, that. You know? Yeah. So, but there but there's only a few people, you know, that come out like that. And that one is like Bob Lazar, that threw me for a whirl. It was like dude, <laughs> he seems like he's telling the truth. A hundred percent. It's just like, yeah, he's so detailed and talking, yeah, about it's like S one. It's not it's area fifty one, but then or S two or S three or something like that. It's S something. And he just goes out insane detail about everything. And then he's a believable character. There's you know, there's newspaper articles about him putting a jet engine inside of his Corvette or something like that. And just like, you know, he's not a dumb guy by any means and he's already relatively, you know, set up in life. There's no reason for that. But then there are a million people out there that you listen to their stories. Like the guy, the family who bought Skinwalker Ranch. It's like, these guys are crazy. You know what I mean? And they're coming out every few months with like, no, I saw, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, why haven't you taken any pictures of any of this? And he's like, oh, well, I, I, do you know anything about Skinwalker Ranch? Like, no, that's a new one. For there, there's a, it's, it's one of the big ones. Um, it's this, you know, it started with all these Indian tales of these Indians supposedly saw all these, like there was this, I can't remember what the tribe was, but they, they'd say that there were certain humans that could take on animal attributes and they would call them skinwalkers. And then, <laughs> so like, if you saw a skinwalker, you had to kill it because its whole mission was to kill you if you, if you like exposed the skinwalker. And then so that was, and then it came up over, you know, hundred, you know, over a hundred years. And then as settlers came over, like it had to do a lot with Mormons coming over. And then, you know, then they started seeing skinwalkers and then into the nineties, that's when it became popular. This family bought the skinwalker ranch and then they just started telling stories. And just crazy stories. And, and what that was went Skinwalker Ranch? A plot of land, like a massive yeah. piece of land where Skinwalkers. It was in. It was in, Yeah, it was in southern Utah. And it's a huge piece of property, and just and there was a bunch of crazy stuff. And on our last episode, I th- I actually went off on a kind of Skinwalker deal, which <laughs> not on the episode, but uh, I there's these Japanese um, balloon bombs during World War Two that uh it was it, to me i just i thought it was super interesting and a lot of people are saying that's what because there was all these sightings in utah about like explosions and, and these like orb things flying through the sky and a lot of 
scientists are saying, well, actually, during this time, the Japanese, they sent out like 10,000 of these like hot air balloon bombs. And I had never heard anything about this. And they'd mm -hmm. be strapped with bombs and they'd get into the jet stream and they were trying to get over to America. And then they were trying to start wildfires over here. And then so oh, wow. one of the explanations for UFO sightings was they're like, well, actually, you're seeing you're seeing, you know, these flashes and stuff like that. And these orbs flying. They're like, well, actually, in that time frame, that's what was going on. Um, but that guy's like, sorry, that was a long rant, but that guy was totally, you know, not a credible person. There's so, he just talked and talked and talked and talked about, oh, I saw this and I saw this and I saw this. And then same with like Bigfoot people like that. It's just so unbelievable. It's just like, oh my gosh. And then no, no backup, no pictures. It's like for the thousand stories he's told, no pictures, you know, it's just like, oh, my, my cow is mutilated. Never, you know, it was just like, well, but then yeah, the Bob Lazar one, that's when it gets like so insane to listen to it's just like oh my gosh this guy is not a dumb guy he's not looking for obviously not looking for fame and a little bit i could put him in the category maybe he's a little off his rocker but the one that really threw me off was the the pilot i can't remember his name but it was like four years ago three years ago he came out and like the guy's highly decorated like obviously wealthy guy and no reason to lie at all and then his account of seeing this aircraft and everything that one was like, okay, he's telling the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. The two things I would say is one, almost everybody who really digs into the, the UFO alien thing, especially the conspiracy part of it, they wind up like at some dead end in their own rabbit hole where there's a version of it. They dig in on, you know, there's like people who's like, like uh, Stanton Friedman, his whole thing was like, the majestic area 51 thing is like, it's real. I can't get to the bottom of it, but it's real. And, you know, Linda Moulton Howe was like, she was the cow mutilation person. And like, there's something going on and there's black helicopters with killing the cows. And like, what is this about? None of them can ever figure it out, but they like, they die on that, that mountaintop of like, that's their, their version of it. Um, but the other thing is, the Area 51 thing is interesting to me. And it's it, because, you know, I got into this stuff. I mean, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So that was a time of like a lot of UFO and paranormal interest in pop culture. But the early 90s were like when I peaked in my interest in this stuff. And it was when the Area 51 and like majestic stuff was super big. Um, and the crazy thing about it is, and this is another thing I credit to, to Jacques Vallée somebody's behind it like feeding information it's not that there's like somebody who wrote this as a fiction story it's that somebody gets a package in the mail of a manila envelope with like redacted photocopies of what look like real documents like somebody is fucking with the ufo community and it doesn't matter who it is it could be a it could be an insane prankster it could be the government it could be the aliens it could be whatever it is it the thing it's it's like self-perpetuating and it's and that part of the mystery is what like drives people crazy like why would stanton friedman come across a cache of documents randomly like who's sending this shit why are they right. fucking with them and you know why when they start to research all the locations and the names of the scientists referenced in the documents they're like they're real people that worked on government research projects like whoever is doing that 
has got a lot of time on their hands and has just enough fact that they sprinkle in that makes it all super credible. Like that to me is the more interesting mystery. Who the fuck is doing that and why? Um, Cause again, it's not like these UFO researchers are making up the beginning of the story. They're stumbling upon something and then maybe getting sent down the bad hallways or the wrong directions. But like there's some beating heartbeat <laughs> in, the, in the middle of it all that that really like again that's kind of why i had to step away from it. I'm like i will go crazy and i will dedicate yeah. my life to this and i'll be living on the streets with a sign like strapped to me that says there you know the end of the world's coming <laughs> i think i think that the whole bob lazar thing last year led to that area 51 let's storm area 51 craziness that was going on in the fall like a year ago yeah. But uh well, Eric, you yeah. Eric, you know you have Bigfoot on your shirt, right? Do I? Yeah. I do. I didn't oh, even God. notice that. That's oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Sell out. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the, the last thing on the on the UFO point is that uh, I so a friend of mine um is pretty he's pretty convinced that like we're on the cusp of a revelation. Um that, you know, because, you know, Trump kind of keeps teasing it um, that, you know, oh, I, the things I'm hearing, oh, you know, maybe we'll let everybody know, you know, I think that that's that alone. It's kind of funny that he's that's another thing he's latched on to kind of toy with people with. Um, uh, but, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe he got the briefing book. Um, but the idea that like now we're seeing these articles about um, there's a new yet another Air Force or a Pentagon panel that's been convened and like Harry Reid is talking out about it. Like, you know, that, that all these people in government are, are talking about it again. And for me, as somebody that's been into it my whole life, it feels a little cyclical to me. I feel like it, it, it it's, it's like pro wrestling. It gets really big for a few years and then it kind of goes away, but it's always there. And then it gets really big again or like heavy metals like that too. Like it comes around in phases. And that's kind of how the UFO phenomenon seems to me is like it gets really big and it seems like something's going to happen and then it gets quiet again. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, hopefully, right, so, hopefully like Elon Musk or something just comes out and throws a bunch of data at us about the, that, that <laughs> then I'd believe it. Then I'd believe it. Elon Musk comes out, just does this whole YouTube video. Like that's it. See, that's what throws me off is like Elon Musk or, or these, all these, I don't know. It's just so hard for me to believe. It's at, right. At you don't some think point, that just... Jeff Bezos, a guy who grew up obsessed with science fiction, is going to send people to Mars, has all the money in the world. If he wanted to figure it out, he could just chip off a little yeah. bit and pay somebody to go figure it out. Right. Yeah. But then, but then the theory is, is that the government, you know, yeah, just like Donald Trump comes in and they're just like, oh, well, here's the, here's the <laughs> stack. You know what I mean? He's like, ah, you know what I mean? He's just like, okay, I'm not going to not going to tell anyone for the rest of my life you know i just it's so hard for me to believe that you know they just like yeah bill clinton's out there gets briefed and then on to the next guy gets briefed right. it's like well if it is a conspiracy theory i don't think they would know you know what i mean i don't think they would tell them if it's really this deep skull and crossbones you know <laughs> uber society just keeping stuff right I, do, I don't believe people can hide things once it gets like i believe once you pass like let's say two thousand people know about something it's real hard to keep, you know what I mean? What's the incentive? You know what I mean? They're oh, going to yeah, be like, well, yeah. I'm just going to leak this out. Yeah. Well, that's Bob Lazar. 
Yeah, there you go. yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what's uh what's next for for your show? What do you guys um like? You know, uh, Brad, you mentioned you know you've kind of been down this route before. You got to around fifty. You got to around ninety. Um, do you have the will and the motivation and sort of the material to keep going? That's a really good question. Um, see, and with both of those shows, I felt in the end they had kind of ran their course because I felt that, and I'm I'm well documented, kind of saying this that they were both kind of one sided. Um, on my part for me coming up with everything and doing all the work. And I kind of just got completely burned out. And then with both of them, when I was doing them in Idaho with no money, I ended up both times moving back here to make more money with the zoom thing. It's kind of like I can just move wherever I want to and keep the show going. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that we try to re- do a really good job of splitting everything 50 50 so that one person's not having to do everything which i'd say was the main thing that that had me burnt out on those last two shows and and i was kind of skeptical about starting this well starting another show because i didn't want that to happen again i'm like what's the point someone else just gets the like the privilege or whatever to just come in sit down and i have everything ready to go i have all the topics i have all the equipment they just come in and come out it's they got the the best job but if we keep it 50 50 like we try to do i could see it going for a long time i mean i and i don't have really have a master plan of where i want it to end up obviously someday maybe getting some kind of sponsorships or something like that it's the guests are a great thing that add an edge to it that help you not get burned out. So there's no, there's no master plan for me. I mean, it's just a, a healthy outlet. One, and one thing I do hate is when I stop doing a show and now my brain's stuck in show mode. And then I'm like, I, now I need some other outlet. Like it's healthy for me to just keep doing a show. Yeah. No, that, that, that seems like reason enough. That seems yeah. like reason enough. Well, I have to thank you guys both. I want to be respectful of your time and uh, uh, it's Friday and we should all uh, do whatever it is. I guess maybe go sit in a different room in our house. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what we do now. Friday, but <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I really, it's, it's been a blast talking to you both and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show and having us on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you, right. you were such a fun guest. And thanks for having us on your show. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ari Rosner, Eric Beavers, and Brad Robertson. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other great places you can get podcasts from. While you're grabbing the latest episode, please also leave us a rating and a review. It's so important to our ongoing success. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch.